Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Monday, February 10th, uh, 2020, which is the day after the Academy Awards. And Drew, I know you were very pleased by how well Parasite did last night. Yes, I was over the moon. And uh, Jim, you need to see it. That is my one okay. one uh, requirement. It's supposedly opening, expanding wider this weekend for obvious reasons. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been a fan of this guy since I used to work at a video store and we got an import of one of his first mm-hmm. movies called Memories of Murder. And, and I just watched it and was transfixed. And I have been in love with this guy's work ever since. So I hope that... You go and seek out some of his earlier movies um, and just envelop yourself in the the majesty of Bong Joon-ho because he is really a, an amazing filmmaker. So I was thrilled last night, Jim. Thrilled. Well, well cool. And I I thought he handled himself ridiculously well, though, you know, the, after a while, the I'm going to get even more drunk now story. Get him, get him another joke, you know. But all right, that was just, anyway. that was like what you were watching at home, Jim. When you saw Eminem come up, you started you started taking shots, and yeah. <laughs> by the end of it, uh, you were oh, you three guess. sheets that to explain, the wind. Yeah, yeah, that explains the voice. Yeah. Okay, um, all right. Well, in other Oscar related news, I, I have to admit I was pleased that Hair Love won, right? Uh, the best animated short. I mean, and. and the best of all possible worlds, they would have split the award, or at least as far as I'm concerned, with Rosanna Sullivan's Kit Bull. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if one film had to win, I, I don't have a problem with Hair Love winning. Right. Um, and did you notice the Kobe Bryant nod? Yeah, I did. I was wondering what that was about. Well, uh, this morning, Matthew Cherry uh, made an appearance on... Uh, live with Kelly and Ryan. They were in, I want to say, the Dolby. Uh, He explained that Kobe obviously was the first African-American filmmaker to ever win for, you know, an Academy Award for Best Animated Short. And so when the nominations came out this year and Matthew and the rest of the team on Hair Love had gotten the second nod, Kobe reached out via Twitter and, you know, just gave him, you know, sort of props for, you know, welcome to the club and wish you well and that sort of thing. So uh, this was kind of Cherry's way of acknowledging that gracious gesture. So, okay. On the other hand, Toy Story 4 wins, which I'm, I, again, Drew, I'm still not on board here. Oh, man. Uh, I, I love it. I, I will. I promise when it shows up on uh, Disney Plus, I'll give it another run. It's on right now, Jim. You have no excuses. You're not Damn. feeling well. Okay, <laughs> yeah. You're gonna after this. You're gonna lay down. You're gonna have a okay. cup of soup, and you're gonna watch Toy Story Four. Okay, I'm okay. gonna try again. Um, I you know, but for me, I mean, well, first of all, Randy Newman's performance of "I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away" Ooh. kind of yeah, kind of redefined throwing a performance away. It was like, yeah, I'm doing the song that may, I'm making it sound like I wrote it in three minutes. And I have to say, you know, look, if if Leica had taken home the you know the best animated feature award for Missing Link, or Sergio and his team had taken it home for Klaus, I I think it would have meant more. You know, to, for Toy Story four to kind of take it home, it's like, well, yeah, okay, it's Pixar again, and it's just it's hard for me with it being the fourth Toy Story film, whereas a, a Coco or an Inside Out, or or for that matter. A brave, you know, when 
a film like that gets acknowledged, it's like, okay, is it, you know, this, this is worthy. This one, it just sort of kind of felt like you made a lot of money. Congratulations. Here's your Oscar. Right. So I think um, maybe it's just like, uh, when people are voting, they see Pixar, they see Disney and they know, well, I, even if I don't watch it, this is probably the best one and they vote, you know, for it. So I don't know. I don't know what to tell okay. you, Jim. Okay. Well, speaking of, of other moments that made me kind of uncomfortable when, uh, James Corden and Rebel Wilson came out dressed in their cat outfits and proceeded to, what, make the joke that it, and on behalf of the, the cast of Cats, we understand how important it is to have good visual effects, which, uh, face it, that was kind of a cheap shot, right? Yeah, I, I was not into that. And, mm. uh, yeah, if you'll see, you, you'll see people from the visual effects community also mm. uh, sort of getting offended by this. Uh, there's a great... A visual effects artist named Tav Aziri, who I follow, and who actually worked on uh, some of the Mission Impossibles, and we had him on the show, and he was talking about how how that was just kind of a cheap shot, and and mm-hmm. it's like it wasn't their fault the movie was terrible. This is how people conceived it, you know. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean that's the thing when you talk with people who work in the visual effects society, and they're always, and in fact, remember the story about Cats where they, they released it, and it's like, we're not done yet. You right. know, you, you, you had your locked-in release date. We didn't finish the effects. And what was it, three days later, four days later, they, they sent the <laughs> further finished version mm-hmm. out to the theaters? I mean, these are people who are, you know, sleeping under their desks, you know, putting in 68 hours a week trying to make these locked in release dates and it's uh, again I, it's just not a happy guy on the other end what what kind of made me happy is the way they handled into the unknown that was awesome uh, i love yeah. that yeah yeah um in fact that i think that was one of the only times out of the night where the set design actually worked you know having the the call and response performer up further i i enjoyed that but but face it, you know, I mean, given what happened with, you know, Frozen 2, this award season, let's be honest here. This all happened within like 10 minutes. Toy Story 4 won the award and then Into the Unknown, you know, was performed on stage. And then I want to say when they went to commercial, it was a Disney Plus ad. So it was like, hi, right, you know, we'll get you back to the Academy Awards in a few moments. But first, the, the, the Disney show. And by the way, did you remember that, you know, Frozen 2 is available on digital and iTunes and Amazon Video starting on Tuesday? So I don't know. It, sometimes that that aspect of the Oscar that, you know, we are here, in fact, to sell a few movie tickets. Right. You know, it kind of gets in the front window. Um, though, you know, what this also made me think of was back in, in March of 2013 when, when as I mentioned, Pixar's Brave uh, took home uh, the Oscar for Best Animated Feature and Brenda Chapman got her on stage and was able to acknowledge her wonderful, beautiful, strong daughter, Emma, who had inspired that movie and um face it drew we've been waiting a long time since then for a new movie from brenda mm-hmm. um in fact i i was really looking forward to to come away uh the live action movie that she shot in in 2018 did did you ever see the log line for this one or it's the the one with angelina jolie and and michael kane yeah it's sort of a it's kind of a prequel kind of fairy tale thing with uh, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, right? 
Yeah, well, I, I, as I understand it, uh, it's a mother and father who were in mourning because they've they've lost their oldest child, a boy. Uh, and so the two younger kids, a daughter named Alice and a son named Peter, try to sort of get their family to, to move past this loss. But what, what's kind of cool about the premise is Alice isn't just any Alice. She's the Alice from Alice in Wonderland. And likewise, Peter isn't just any Peter. He's Peter Pan. So this debuted just last month at Sundance, right? And yeah, uh, we were both just looking to see if it got a distribution deal, and so far, doesn't nothing. look like it. It wasn't. It wasn't super well received out of Sundance. So, mm. you know, I don't know. I don't know, Jim. No. Okay. The reason we're bringing up Brenda at this point is she just uh, landed a deal. For her next project, Ghost Squad, which is supposed to be based on a soon-to-be-published book from Scholastic. I don't know if you've seen any of the pieces of the concept art that are out for this, but it's it's set in St. Augustine, Florida. So there's this one shot of this tremendous boat dock that has like a billion cats on it, uh, you know, <laughs> leading to this house on the beach. But evidently, the, the premise of the story is two outcast kids accidentally release malicious spirits just before Halloween. And I, I really hope this movie happens. But at, at the same time, I've been hoping that both Brenda and her husband, Kevin Lima, you know, they, they've just had such a, a horrible run of luck. I mean, I, I'm sure you were keeping tabs uh, for a while there on Holly, what was it? Bollywood Monkey Superstar, the thing that Kevin was working on yeah. over at DreamWorks that had a score by Stephen Schwartz, I want to say. And four years that thing was in development, serious development over at DreamWorks. And it got canceled in, in January of 2015, what, largely because they were getting DreamWorks ready to sell to Universal, right? Yeah, that uh, was when they were really re juggling the the calendar i think that was at the same time that they you know they put penguins of madagascar up before uh home and and yeah there was a lot of juggling going on at that point i remember Mm. that very well yeah so he comes out of of that heartbreaking situation and he and brenda score a deal with 20th century fox you know and and you know they together they're setting up a production company and but you know they cut a deal with 20th Century Fox just before Disney announces its acquisition, and again in one of these situations where a studio is getting ready to be sold to an even larger studio, and that's when you kill a lot of production deals. You know you slim the company down to make it that much more attractive and easier to sell. And I don't know. I just for me, I, I felt like especially last year. When you know Lion King was out there making billions of dollars, and John Favreau was getting all of this acclaim, and it's like, your Brenda was the head of story, yeah, on on the original Lion King back in '94, and and would it have hurt to get just a nod in her direction, you know? Yeah. So. Well, did you did you also remember when she was at Lucasfilm and she was working on a some animated feature there? Oh God, yes! I think it was strange magic. Yeah, I think I think it eventually became strange magic, but she she's never talked about it before. (laughs) Well, the the interesting thing is, if you poke at her credit, is consultant as in you know, I came through the door, I looked at it, I said, "There's no way you can fix this," and I walked out. But again, that that's another one of those 
those projects that um, after Disney bought Lucasfilm, it's like, yeah, what do we do with this? You know, it's it's like all those completed episodes of Star Wars Detour that are somewhere in a vault. Right. You know, that, 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 you know, Seth Green and, and the crew at Robot Chicken did that, you know, I mean, every so often a couple of those will bubble up on on YouTube. But um, anyway, uh, speaking of, of Disney related reboots now, we've seen some movement on the Lilo and Stitch uh, project that they've. Uh, they've got a script now by Mike Van Was, and evidently the Aladdin producers, David Lynn and John Elrich, are, are on board to produce this as well. You were mentioning you don't necessarily think that this is headed straight for Disney+. Plus, which yeah. Is, yeah, I mean, the, the report was from a site called the Diz Insider or something. Mm-hmm. Not it's, okay. it's not the New York Times. So, you know, okay. I, I, I think that that's one thing. And then the other thing is that there's such a huge retail component to Lilo and mm-hmm. Stitch. I mean, the Tomorrow Landing and Tomorrowland out here at Disneyland is just a Stitch mm-hmm. store. Stitch and Angel mm-hmm. and, you know, whoever else. And obviously they love both of those characters in the Japanese parks. I, I don't to me it, it they might be leaving money on the table if they decide to not go theatrical and I don't ever see Disney doing that. So I would be very surprised if it was a Disney Plus film. Okay. Okay. Um, speaking of which, though, I, I guess we should pivot at least for a minute or two to talk about the Mulan situation, which is, you know, uh, I don't know if you saw the story in the trades earlier this week about how Disney is proceeding with the March release of this film, even though as of right now, it, it looks like this is not going to be shown in mainland China or in Hong Kong. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that they were. I mean, I'm sure they were planning to do something at the Shanghai Park. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do that anymore. It's yeah. it's a tricky situation between that and mm. what's going on with Hong Kong. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. not a great time for Disney Asian parks right now. No, no, I agree. I agree. But, you know, you face it. Once it's released in North America or thereabouts, in fact, let's be completely honest here, Drew, that, that, you know, one of the reasons like over the last five to 10 years, we've seen movies, for example, a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films released in, in Russia or, or Asia ahead of the States is because when they, these sorts of films debuted in the States, they were pirated and immediately went overseas and the thinking at at the Disney's of the world is, you know, well, if we open there first, there's less opportunity to pirate this film. You know, I mean, face it, with a title like Mulan, you know, from the moment this opens up in North America, that's headed overseas. This is a title that people have really been looking forward to. Um, it's got to be a frustration at Disney just thinking about you know, the the lost revenue by not being able to open in, in those markets in, you know, following the the Marvel Cinematic Universe pattern. Yeah. I don't know. It, I, it's an interesting landscape right now, Jim, for sure. Absolutely. And, and speaking of interesting films arriving in the marketplace, starting on Thursday night, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog is released. And, and again, let's remember, folks, this is the film that got pushed back uh, after the first trailer dropped in May of last year, got pushed back from an originally a November release date to a February release date. And 
as I understand it, they spent five months retooling the look of the title character. To hear Jim Fowler, the director of the film, talk, they only spent $5 million to, you know, retool the film. So, uh, you know, it, it, it bumped up the budget from $90 million to $95 million. But you were saying that just the fact that it has so little buzz isn't necessarily a good thing? I've heard from folks that it's not very good. Let's just say mm-hmm. that. Um, okay. Review embargoes have not uh, have not broken yet, even though it comes out on Thursday night, which is also not mm-hmm. a great sign. But okay. yeah, supposedly it's a road trip movie where Sonic the Hedgehog sits in a car for most of the running time, which is very weird because he is... <laughs> The fastest creature on earth or whatever. So yeah, it's okay. a little it's a little weird, Jim. It's a little weird. But you know, I, I always hope for the best. Okay. Well, same thing here. Same thing here. Um and, and speaking of films that actually I again I'm I'm really pulling for and oddly enough, it's Togo that got me excited about this, but uh the, the Harrison Ford Call of the Wild, which of course uh, you were pointing out this is directed by Chris Sanders, who along with Dean Dubois did the original Lilo and Stitch. And he was in. on the story department for Lion King. And his, he was. His, he uh, was. Yeah, his storyboards are my favorite because they are, they look like Chris Sanders' versions of all the characters, and it's so cool to see those. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're also just, they're wonderfully clear. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, know, you can always tell with a, a Chris Sanders a storyboard drawing where you're supposed to look. Uh, more to the point... What's the emotion? Yeah. You know, and it's just, just remarkable clarity. But, yeah. But again, that comes out Friday after next, so February 21st. And I, I want to say somebody was telling me earlier this week about reshoots, but it's like, I mean, face it, these days, you know, it, it used to be, oh, my God, they're reshooting the film. You know, and it, that means trouble. And these days it means they're reshooting the film. That means it's Tuesday. You know, I just... Right. It it is kind of the landscape these days. You you get something in, you edit it together and go, ah, we needed that or we need this or we should have done that differently. And it's just it's kind of built into, you know, the actual production schedule. Yeah. Oh, uh, so. And I think especially with an animator who's so used to an iterative process that it actually is beneficial to, to his process as well. Just being able mm-hmm. to, to tweak you know, and, and redo things. Cause that's, that's the landscape he came from, you know? But see, now I'm thinking, you know, well, I'm I, now Drew says I got to sit down and watch Toy Story 4, but you know, I really <laughs> would rather watch Togo. So maybe, <laughs> so, all right. Well, okay. So we've been talking about profitable franchises and, and, and such in a moment. Uh, Drew and I are going to take a look at uh, Winnie the Pooh. And that franchise's problematic start at the studio and how it went from a standalone featurette to a franchise that once rivaled Mickey Mouse when it came to profitability. All right, uh, before we get started here, just this week over at Disney Dish, uh, Len and I did the history of the Disney Institute, and you were telling me, Drew, off air that you had a story about yeah. The- well, I actually, I took classes there. Oh, sorry, not classes, Jim. Uh, workshops. Workshops, oh, right? Okay. Yes. I, I did a, an, uh, I think I did a computer animation class and a stop motion animation class. And I, this must have been right when it opened, maybe 95, 96. Okay. And w- during the stop motion class, the professor had told us, because he was probably an animator down there or had worked on Nightmare Before Christmas or something. 
And he mm-hmm. had said that Nick Park had just been through because this was the time when Katzenberg was trying to woo Ardman to do a movie with Disney back in the day that never ended up happening. He finally got them for uh, when he went over to DreamWorks, obviously, with uh, Chicken Run. But I just thought that was fascinating that he had been in Florida, had been at the Disney Institute. They had tried to get him and it and it didn't happen. And I was there like right around this time when all this was going on. Okay, so let me add a, a, a teeny tiny story to the pile here. My friend Justin Jorgensen uh, worked on the infamous redo of Journey into Imagination. And he's to blame. Was, he's to blame. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I genuinely feel bad for Justin because they, they were in an impossible situation. Kodak had said, here's your dollar fifty, and do with it what you can. But Justin was mentioning that during this period of time, when they were looking at redoing the attraction, that they had gotten a list from Disney corporate about who they could use as new celebrities in the attraction. And what was fascinating is on the list during this period was uh, Wallace and Gromit. They had acquired the theme park rights I don't know how long from Ardman, but Wallace and Gromit could be used in a theme park attraction. So was there a way perhaps to bring these characters into the attraction? And the other one that kind of caught my attention was Michael Jordan. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. So these two were literally on the list of, okay, could you use these, you know, when you're redoing the Imagination Pavilion? And it was... And here's a handful of pipe cleaners and folding chairs. You know, to, to, is this enough? Can, can, can this is enough for you to work with? And uh, yeah, it just we all saw how that turned out. But anyway, we we were talking about Winnie the Pooh, and I I, I apologize, folks. I'm I'm using a totally artificial reason to talk about Winnie the Pooh with today's fine tuning because I was uh, looking at the calendar and noticed that. Well, first of all, again, Drew and I are recording this on on February 10th, and. On February 11th, the Tigger movie and Pooh's Heffalump movie were released to theaters. The Tigger movie was released in February 11, 2000, and the Heffalump movie was released in February of 2005. So, uh, like I said, bogus excuse, but I'm, I'm taking it. All right, so uh, uh, start with the, the, the obvious. Drew, have you ever read... Any of the A.A. Milne books that the Winnie the Pooh films are based on? I never have. Uh, I'm, I'm sad to report. Well, the, the, there's a total of four of them. Uh-huh. Uh, when We Were Very Young, which is, um, in fact, that's the book that the Edward Bear character that eventually becomes Winnie the Pooh is introduced in. That was published in 1924. Then Pooh gets his own standalone book in October of 1926. Uh, then there's a, a book called Now We Are Six. It's a sequel to When We Were Very Young. That's published in, in 1927. And then finally, in uh, 1928, the uh, Methuen publishes The House at Pooh Corner. And that's it. That These are the four books. Because that's the thing. A.M. A. really thought of himself as more of a, a, a serious playwright. And these were sort of a, you know, just, you know, kind of a knockoff thing that he did. But they're hugely popular. By the early 1960s, they've sold more than 10 million copies, and they've been translated in 12 different languages. And they come on Disney's radar in, like, 38. And, you know, Diane Disney Miller tells the story about 
uh, her dad came into her bedroom and it's like, what are you laughing at? And she's, well, this book dad, this thing about Winnie the Pooh. And so he spends the next two decades trying to get his hands on them. And again, as I mentioned, the problem is A.A. A. Milne thought of himself as a serious playwright. And it really, later in life, it really began to bother him that, you know, so many people associated him with these children's books. So he was very deliberate about, I will not release the rights. But then in 1952, he has a stroke that leaves him as an invalid. He finally passes away in January 56. And it's Milne's widow, Daphne, uh, who, after waiting a, a discreet period, then begins entertaining offers from Hollywood. And the real Christopher Robin Milne honestly wanted nothing to do with Winnie the Pooh being commercialized. Uh, this is why, for example, you can go to New York, to the New York Public Library, and see the really for real toys that Christopher Robin played with uh, on display at the New York Public Library. He donated them. It wasn't a case of, you know, put these up to for the highest bidder. But but anyway, starting in the early, late 1950s, early 1960s, um, selective rights to the Pooh characters, you know, start to bubble up. Uh, the folks who produced the Shirley Temple show for NBC got the rights to do an hour-long version of Winnie the Pooh that was done with the Bill Baird marionettes. You've seen those. Yeah. They're featured in The Sound of Music. Uh, the Yodelehi song. Yes. Okay, so Disney finally acquires the film rights to Winnie the Pooh in June of 1961. And uh, December of 63, Sword in the Stone comes out, and that's based on the T.H. White book. Uh, It underperforms at the box office. And so as 1964 starts... Walt believes that the reason that Sword of the Stone did so poorly at the box office was because the script that Bill Pete wrote for the project uh, didn't stick closely enough to the source material, that it didn't follow the storyline of the T.H. White novel. And Bill Pete really resents this so much so that he's he's worked for the, at the, the studio for 27 years at this point. He's built himself up to the point where he's like, he's the sole writer of 101 Dalmatians. You know, and likewise, he's the sole writer of Sword in the Stone. But on January 29th, 1964, he quits. He just walks out the door. And and he's already got a pretty successful career as a storybook illustrator and, and writer. And he, he then becomes the Bill Pete we know and love today. But but Walt decides that when it comes to A.A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh, that first of all, he wants to make a full-length animated feature. And more to the point, he wants to stick as close to the source material as as humanly possible. And there's this magazine called the Disney World. It's the in-house publication for folks who work at Walt Disney Productions in the 60s, the folks who worked on a lot in Burbank and then the others over at Glendale at Wed Headquarters. And in the February-March 1965 issue, they talk about the still-in-production Winnie the Pooh and how during the planning and animation stage... Uh, Walt and director Wolfgang Reitherman referred time and again to Ernest Shepard's original ink and paint sketches so that all of A.A. Milne's legendary characters, Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin, Eeyore Piglet, Tigger, Owl Kanga, and Roo, they'd come to the screen exactly as Pooh fans had known them for more than 30 years. And it wasn't just the character design. They, they wanted the background. Uh, Wooly goes on to say, in painting the backgrounds of the featurette, 
We often employ transparent watercolors so that the exclusive charm of Shepard's free pink and eight drawings could predominate the colors. And more to the point, they, they wanted the characters on screen to be as close to Shepard's original sketches as an animatable character can be. What's fascinating to me about that, Drew, is think about that. What, 15 years earlier, uh, here's Disney laboring to do Alice in Wonderland, to bring that to the screen. And the Sir John Tenniel's illustrations for uh, those books that are so distinctive. And in the end, Disney decides there's just no way we can bring that sort of ink and paint style to the screen. And that's when they effectively sort of pivot and it's like, okay, Mary Blair, what can you do with this? I don't know. I'm, I'm just fascinated to watch how Disney's opinions about what works for the screen change, you know, over the history of the studio. Anyway, again, Walt still wants to do Winnie the Pooh as a full length feature, but he believes that in order to do this, uh, he needs a star. So he reaches out to then popular stand-up comic George Goebel, and he asks him, you know, will you do the voice of uh, the silly old bear? You know, he gets he makes this offer to George in early 1964, and George goes home and reads all four of the Winnie the Pooh books, and to be blunt, George doesn't get it. You know, he he reads them and it's like they're whimsical, they're charming, right. But but Winnie the Pooh as a character is kind of boring, so he turns Walt down. This kind of throws Walt for a loop because he feels like, you know, especially coming off of what happened with Sword in the Stone, where he felt like I really didn't have a star in that, and maybe that's another reason it didn't perform. Suddenly he's thinking, you know, maybe we're not going to do Winnie the Pooh as a, a full-length animated feature. Maybe we're going to do it as a featurette. But then it becomes a question of, okay, so what film are we pairing with? And initially they were thinking they were going to put it out into theaters uh, with That Darn Cat in December of 1965. Uh, Problem with that, though, is That Darn Cat is 116 minutes long. Uh, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree is 27 minutes long. And if you pair those two films, that's a two and a half hour double bill. And that means if you're an exhibitor who's running, you know, a movie theater or a chain of movie theaters, uh, you can get far fewer showings a day of that double bill because it's two and a half hours. On the other hand, Disney has another animal-based comedy, The Ugly Dachshund. And by the way, what's kind of intriguing about these two, Drew, is they both star Dean Jones. It's honestly kind of hard looking over... Dean Jones's career at Disney and, and Tim Conway used to tell this great joke about when you got hired for to work at Disney It's like you'd show up and they go, OK, well, here's your costume and here's your animal. Just look at whether you're being handed Gus, the the field kicking mule or the tiger from World's Greatest Athlete. But uh, all of these performers had to, you know, to work with animals at some point. Right. Uh, but anyway, Ugly Dachshund is only 93 minutes long. So if you paired a 27-minute featurette with that, that's only two hours and 10 minutes, which means, you know, you could sneak in another show a day. So that's what they decided to do. They're going to put, you know, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, the featurette out with Ugly Dachshund is a double bill in February of 66. But to make sure that they, they take advantage of this extra time, they they cut a deal with Sears 
you know, it's the effect of, look, you'll have an exclusive on the Winnie the Pooh characters, you know, and you, you can use them for clotheslines, you can use them for, for plush, whatever you want to do. But what we ask in return is that, you know, you do these lots of in-store promotions for Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. Then uh, Walt has a walk-around character costumes created for the five Winnie the Pooh characters. Uh, Pooh, Eeyore, Owl, Rabbit, and Kanga. And Drew, I, I, I heartily recommend you you Google Winnie the Pooh 1965 just to see these walk-around characters because they're horrifying. You know, the, 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 Is this the Pooh with the honey on his head? Well, yes, okay. but, but, and again, these are all costumes that Bill Justice designed. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is the Eeyore one has basically stayed the same since 65. Whereas the Owl one, for example, they put a, like a professor's hat on the top of his head. So, you know, they have space. I mean, in much the same way as Winnie the Pooh had the honeypot. So you could accommodate a guy with height who'd look out through the honeypot. But the ah. rabbit is just distorted and but anyway they 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 actually trot these out uh first time in october of of 65 for the national association of theater owners convention in la and then for the holiday parade at disneyland from december of 65 through early january of 66 uh these characters are walking through the park every day behind a, a honey tree float and then I, what's kind of interesting is literally 10 days before the movie opens, they take cast members and they take these same costumes and throw them on the Gulf Stream, the, the, the thing that Walt used during his land search for Project Florida in 63. Oh, wow. And they proceed to fly them around the country. They, they visit 25 different cities. I want to say over 20, 21 days. So it's 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 a brutal tour. And more to the point, because it's February. For example, when they land in, in D.C., they have a freak snowstorm. And they have to figure out how to get through to the next stop on the tour when, you know, there are five-foot snowdrifts at Dulles Air Force. But interesting thing, it, it all pays off. The movie comes out, smash it, February of 66. So much so, by May of 66, Walt is already reaching out to the animation team, congratulate them, but also saying, maybe it's time for us to start developing a, a sequel to Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. So, But again, they have all this development art and all the work they've done on the features, so they just sort of pivot. And, all right, let's go back to what we didn't use. And there's two characters they especially left off the table because they were going to be challenging from an animation point of view. And one of them was Tigger, kind of the over-exuberant stuffed tiger. And the other one was Pooh's timid little friend Piglet. And what's interesting is by November of 66, uh, again, here's Disney World Magazine talking about work is expected to get underway in January of 67 on a sequel to the Honey Tree featurette. And uh, this is at, at that time known as Winnie the Pooh and the Heffalumps. And and Walt is really, really excited about this project because he's he's got the actor that he thinks is going to be perfect as the voice of Tigger. And that's Wally Bogue, the star of Disney's long running Golden Horseshoe Review. But then December 15th, 1966, Walt dies and a lot of stuff suddenly goes sideways to the studios. And, and one of the things is especially goes sideways is Wally Bogue's career. 
I mean, this is this is kind of a lesser talked about aspect of when Walt ran the company, but Walt had his favorites. And if you were Walt's favorite, you know, you, you got to do extra cool stuff. I mean, Wally, for example, was given the opportunity to write the script for the original Tiki Bird show, uh, which opened in June of 63. He also got to do cameos in movies like uh, 61's The Absent Minor Professor and 63 sequel to, to Absent Minor Professor's Son of Flubber. You know, this was Walt. You know, again, it's like I want to give Wally this opportunity. I want to give him a chance to be in, in an animated film. And because all of these people have been standing by waiting to be Walt's favorite and being ignored, once Walt was gone, they kind of took advantage of that. And Wally's opportunities outside of the theme parks kind of dried up at that point. And uh, when it came time for Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, when it finally arrived in theaters... That's what the name got changed to after Winnie the Pooh and the Heffalumps. Tigger was now voiced by Paul Winchell. And Drew, you, you probably remember the stories about what happened with, with Paul Winchell. I mean, he he did the character for like 30 years. And uh-huh. then, what was it? It was the Tigger movie that he they brought him in to record on? Yes. And as I understand it, this is what, uh, spring of 98. They bring him in for one day. And the thing is that Paul's now 76 at this point, and he's older and his voice is a little raspy. You know, they're sitting in the booth listening to this, and it's just like, geez, he doesn't really sound like Tigger anymore. And this whole movie is built around Tigger. And so, you know, they thank Paul, they they pay him for the day, and then they turn around and um, get Jim Cummings, who is now the voice of Winnie the Pooh, because... Sterling Holloway had passed away in the 70s. And now Jim Cummings is the voice of Pooh and Tigger. You got your copy of Kevin Rafferty's Magic Journey book, right? Yes, correct. Okay, so the Imagineers were, they were offended that Paul had been treated this way. So when they were doing the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh attraction, the replacement for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride for Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, they... They made a point of saying the only person will accept to play Tigger in this attraction is Paul Winchell. Kevin tells this really interesting story about that recording session. The The way the story goes is, you know, he he comes in and he's really worked hard to get his voice back in good shape. And he's there for the full day and does great work and everyone's pleased with what he's going to do. And they're wrapping up the recording session and Paul turns the engineer and says, as a favor, can we record one more thing? And it's like, okay, sure. Let's, what is it you want to record? And, you know, they fire up the recording device and Paul, you know, steps up to the mic and says, T-T-F-R, ta-ta forever. And that was the thing. Hail and farewell to doing that character. But anyway, Winnie the Pooh stays a cash cow at Disney for years. Toys continued to fly off the shelf. In fact, for a number of years during the 1980s, the number one best-selling album at, you know, the history of the company was, of course, the soundtrack of the original Mary Poppins. But right behind that, and I want to say the two, three, and four position, were a number of Winnie the Pooh-related albums. Again, people loved this. And 
Disney did this really, really smart thing in the late 90s where they effectively divided the uh, product line. So they had what they referred to as Disney's poo, uh, the one with the red shirt and the orange fur. Right. And then they had classic poo, which they had all of these these illustrations of the character that were basically based on the Under Shepherd drawings. And what ended up happening, it was such a smart play that for a time during this period, Winnie the Pooh merchandise, the sales of merchandise, actually put more in the company's coffers than the sale of Mickey Mouse merchandise did. But then the year after that, as happened, sales slid a bit. And, you know, the folks at Consumer Products were like, okay, so how do we get the, the sales up again? And I don't know if when you were at Oh My Disney, the topic of Lumpy the Heffalump ever came up. Um, no. Is he kind of uh, is he the is he the hero Heffalump? Well, he's the he's the little baby Heffalump. In fact, supposedly he's based on a character that was introduced in the the Adventures of Winnie the Pooh animated series that was done for television in the eighties, and it was a junior Heffalump. And you know, it's a, well, what if there was a little Heffalump that that could be Pooh's friend? And and that's where Lumpy came in. This little purple Heffalump. In fact, again, he he got his own film, uh, as we mentioned at the top there in in two thousand five. But what was fascinating is that people at Disney kept Lumpy going. I mean, he was in no less than uh, three uh, home premieres. The uh, Pooh's Heffalump Halloween movie, uh, Pooh's Super Sleuth Christmas movie. You know, as recently as last year, the character showed up in the Kingdom Hearts game. Now, now to be fair, the Kingdom Hearts game was years behind schedule, and so it, it's not a question of Lumpy's front and center right now. But I guess for me, what what's fascinating about this is that remember there was that. CG version, my friend's Tigger and Pooh show that was, you know, created where Christopher Robin was no longer Pooh's friend. It was a little girl named Darby. Uh, And the weird part of it is, is that shuts down production in, what is it, 2010. And then in July of 2011, we get that hand-drawn version of Winnie the Pooh that effectively kills hand-drawn at Disney because they send it out into theaters. Didn't it open on the exact same day as part two of Deathly Hallows? Yes. You know. Supposedly um, Dick Cook didn't like it, so he sent it to the slaughter. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, because I don't know. It just, for me, what's fascinating is watching how Disney continues to go back to the well with Pooh. I mean, back in the summer of 2018, we had the Christopher Robin movie, which, uh, again, Disney Consumer Products, <laughs> excuse me, Disney Consumer Products, Parks and Experiences, they created a, a brand new line of Winnie the Pooh dolls to go out in into stores to support that film. And, and I guess that what I found completely ironic, Drew, is that these dolls were modeled after the real Winnie the Pooh dolls that are on display at the New York Public Library, the ones that Christopher, the real Christopher Robin donated because he did not want uh, Winnie the Pooh to be commercialized. And, you know, here was Disney using that to commercialize the characters yet again. 
Um, I don't know. I have to ask, again, given that you were in-house at Disney for a number of years, Pooh was a still a fairly big franchise at that point oh did, yeah did you... he, he was a big priority i mean you know you had to if you could hit the poo facebook page that was one of the the best pages to hit um mm-hmm. in terms of writing articles or getting social copy out so yeah he was mm-hmm. a he was a big priority always so yeah i but wish they would I... do more with him you know mm-hmm. but at the same time i mean he's a challenging character to write about because in a weird sort of way, he is, he's everywhere, but at the same time, he's incredibly limited. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's kind of a character where things happen to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't sort of, uh, he doesn't drive the story in a way where he's, his actions are creating, you know, the chaos or, or anything else. You mm-hmm. know, it's always stuff that he likes honey. You know, he's a nice guy. He gets stuck sometimes. But yeah, there's not a lot of... Uh, there's not a lot of uh, drama there, but I thought the 2011 movie was amazing, and I know that you love as much as I do the fact that since it was the last hand-drawn animated movie, it's got a murderer's row of talent behind each character, oh, whether yeah. it's Bruce Smith, who just won an Oscar, or mm-hmm. uh, Eric Goldberg, Mark Henn. I remember talking to all those guys for that movie, and it was like, how is it that all these people are on one movie and that that movie is a barely released Winnie the Pooh feature that came out like a year before in Europe or something? Do you remember mm-hmm. that too? That it came out a yeah. lot earlier? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Not a happy story, folks. You know, I mean, get a, but the weird thing is even today, uh, Disney continues to make considerable bank off of uh, Winnie the Pooh. I want to say that uh, the Zumzums that the company created uh, you know Winnie the Pooh is among the best selling of the Zumzums you know and, and ironically enough because it's because the characters can be reduced down to just those handful of features and people still recognize them you love those zoom zooms Jim I know your house is full of them the cats play no. with them the no no never mind you I'm looking at my my Dio and what is it BB8 Funko Pop so Yes, they're here next to to Nosemore, <laughs> startling resemblance. Yeah, okay. I was gonna say. All right. Well, anyway, so so that's the the Winnie the Pooh story, and now, Drew, you have to be putting on, you know, your track shoes, getting ready to keep tabs on what's going on. Uh, Mission Impossible wise, right? Cause I know. Yeah, they're about to start shooting. Um, and All right. Yeah. Venice is, is yeah Venice Venice and Rome starting later this month so mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it's crazy uh, okay we're ready we're ready to run and gun Jim we're there we're there wherever okay. they are yeah and we've got some great guests lined up too so you know keep okay that in mind. Yeah. all right so I, I'll be fascinated to hear forgive me I know Venice is the the, the flooded city but wasn't it particularly flooded you know like. Two and three months ago? Yeah. Um, it's also weird because they've shot ja- a James Bond movie there. Uh, remember, the, the whole climax of Casino Royale was there. Oh, that's right. So yeah. I went, I, I, they're going to have to do something new. I say okay. I think a boat chase is probably in order, but mm-hmm. that's just me purely hypothesizing. So, yeah. Okay. Very so exciting. Can- can you talk about you know who you've got set up to? You're doing interviews. Yeah, with, we've or? got well, we've got we've still got the John Knoll uh, series coming up, who's great. Mm. And then uh, after that, we've got uh, this guy David James, who was the set photographer for four of the movies. 
So really cool. Yeah, we're we're barreling towards that 100th episode. It's very exciting. So yeah, keep keep tuned in. Okay, no, definitely worth checking out, folks. And uh, over here, we we have a bunch of podcasts as well. We have Disney Dish with Lentesta. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We have the Marvelous Disney podcast that we do with Aaron Adams, looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. And then we have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. So um, tell you what, folks, if you could do, Drew and I have a favor. If you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only fine-tuning, but also light the fuse. Likewise, if you really like what we do here, if you get over to Bandcamp and subscribe, well, that that makes it that much easier for us to buy Zumzums. Yes. Um, <laughs> and now, Light the Fuse, you, you've got a social media presence, right? We do, yeah. We're Light the Fuse Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, new episodes every Friday. So please oh. listen, yeah. Cool, cool. Okay. And on the Jim Hill Media side... Uh, you can find us at Twitter, and we're also at Facebook at jimhillmedianews.com, which Nancy told me I have to tell you folks. So anyway, th- thanks for listening, and Drew and I will be back soon.